Katie Loveman speaking in the series, King David, the good, the bad and the ugly, the bearer of God's promise. Well, good morning, everybody. Have you ever tried to make a silk purse out of a pig's ear? Well, it won't work. Not that I've tried it, but I do know that it can't be done. Ever since the fall, nothing is ever going to be perfect or perfectly right. Some situations are even so complex that we can't see any right way through them. And we just long for God to sort things out. Since the fall, the world has turned into a bit of a pig's ear. But we want silk purses. But you can't make a silk purse out of a pig's ear. And we long for God to make a silk purse from the pig's ears of our lives. But the only way that can happen is to start with a silk pig, as this man said. But we know that the world's not like that. But the brilliant thing is that God knows that. Nothing in the world is perfect, and none of us can offer him blameless lives or pure motives. But God still works in the world, and he still works in us, and he uses us to carry out his perfect plan. And that's exactly what we see in the life of King David. He was a really important figure in the history of Israel, and God used him as a step on the way to Jesus' coming. The first shepherd king, a beautiful psalm writer, a man after God's own heart. So many good things. His reign was seen as a golden age, and yet some of the things that he did were bad and some downright ugly. The Bible gives us glimpses of what God's plan is for creation. We get a beautiful picture of a perfect garden in the book of Genesis. And then in Revelation, there's a beautiful city full of light and jewels. In Isaiah, we see an unattainable peace where lambs can be friends with lions and babies can play with snakes without getting hurt. But it's not a smooth path at all, is it? Along the way, there's lots of violence and appalling behaviour. That's what the history of God's people was, and the Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. But what if we see the history of God's people not only as a historical account of God working in the world, but also as a metaphor for his eternal plan. The Bible is a mosaic of stories, and many of these stories are telling the same truth, spiralling round to reiterate the same things in different ways. Like a set of Russian dolls, they all look alike, but each one is on a different scale. So the whole Bible tells the sweeping story of how God loves the world and the many ways that he's defeating evil and bringing redemption, ultimately through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the coming of his kingdom. But the history of the Jews themselves also embodies that message as they go through the centuries of the Old Testament. We see it too playing out in the lives of individual people. Abraham, Joseph, Ruth, some of the prophets all lived out parts of the message in their own lives. And this is one reason why King David is such an important figure, because God used his life 
as a prophecy of that story. David embodies Israel, not only as its king, but he also embodies Israel's role as God's chosen people. But David is only an imperfect human being, so there are elements of the pig's ear in what his life shows us. But eventually we come to the life of Jesus. He is the ultimate embodiment of Israel, the chosen one from the chosen race, the anointed Messiah. During his ministry on earth, he often deliberately reenacted and reinterpreted the events of Israel's history in order to show us something of God's plan. And right down to our own lives too, the battle between good and evil, the rescue we can claim through Jesus' death, and the promise of rest in God's kingdom. The hymn, Shine, Jesus, Shine, has that line in it, mirrored here, may our lives tell your story. Our lives tell that same story. So what happens if we look at David's life as a prophecy? Perhaps this is what the Bible meant, means when it says that David was a man after God's own heart, that God was using David's life to reveal his own heart. When we look at David's life as a prophecy, can we see what's in God's own heart? I think we can. When we first meet David, he's the youngest brother in a big farming family, working in the fields in Bethlehem. His great-grandparents were Ruth and Boaz from the Book of Ruth. So he was <coughs> one-eighth Moabite on his great-grandmother's side. Through Samuel, God chose him, excuse me. <coughs> Through Samuel, God chose David to be anointed as Israel's next king after Saul. And this is when his life starts to get interesting. It takes on some significant characteristics, which we can now see as prophetic of God's anointed Messiah, Jesus. David was bearing that promise right from the start. David spent a lot of his early life on the run from Saul. During that time, he was in a bit of a limbo, really. He was the anointed king, but he hadn't yet come into his kingdom. Instead, he was living in the wilderness with 600 loyal followers, keeping out of Saul's way and fighting battles against Israel's enemies. Against all the odds, Saul's son Jonathan makes a touching declaration of loyalty and they make a covenant to protect each other and their descendants. David relied on Jonathan's faithfulness to save his life on a number of occasions, just as we can rely on the faithfulness of God and the new covenant that he makes with us, his people. But when is a king not a king? When he's anointed, oh, thank you. but not enthroned. So this is a helpful image of Jesus. He's even more of a king because he's the ruler of the whole of creation. But his kingdom has not yet fully come. He is enthroned in heaven already, and he has been since his ascension. But we can't see the full effects of that yet. We're like those 600 followers. We know the truth about Jesus. And we've sworn allegiance like Jonathan. We're living in God's new covenant. Like David, Jesus is our shepherd king, 
and we willingly submit to his rule because we know that one day we'll see him reign completely in all his glory. During those years that David was living in the desert and relying on God to protect him, Ruth spoke the other week about how that prepared him for the future. And this experience reminds us of the Israelites. When they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, they relied on God for everything. And during that time, they came to understand more about God and more about themselves as his chosen people. So when we see David reliving Israel's time in the wilderness, he's showing us that he embodies Israel as her king and her representative before God and the world. It was a formative time for him, just as it was for Israel, as they were forced to rely on God for everything, despite all the hardships and temptations. <clears throat> and of course, we know that Jesus also spent time in the wilderness, not 40 years, but 40 days. Jesus took that defining period in Israelite history and he relived it in his own life, preparing for his destiny by being totally reliant on God. And by doing this, he identified with God's chosen people and more than that, he embodied them as their ultimate chosen representative by going through what they'd been through and what David had been through before. So what happens in the wilderness? Well, for Jesus, it was temptations, three of them. Satan comes to Jesus when he's fasting, so he's hungry and perhaps a bit weak. Satan tempts him to satisfy his hunger by turning the stones into bread. Jesus replies that man does not live on bread alone, but on the word of God. Satan is trying to get Jesus to put himself first, to use his power for his personal benefit, to get a little bread to eat, even though he's obviously made a commitment to God not to eat for 40 days. It's the temptation of creature comforts and materialism over our focus on God. And there was a time when David faced a similar temptation. He and his men are hungry. They need food. So David asks for help from a priest in a place called Nob. Unfortunately, he lies to the priest about why he's there and who he's with, and he asks him for five loaves of bread. All the priest has is the consecrated bread from the altar, so he offers him that. David has all his followers with him. Did those five loaves miraculously feed all 400 men? We don't know, but we do know that the number of five loaves is an odd coincidence. If Jesus in Matthew chapter 14 is deliberately referring to that occasion, he's telling us something about himself. He is the true provider of holy bread when he took five loaves and fed 5,000 people. We don't have to tell lies to get the living bread from Jesus. We don't live on bread alone. And we can come to Jesus for all our needs, his living bread for our spiritual needs and his generous provision for our material needs. In Jesus' second temptation, Satan tells Jesus to throw himself off from the highest point of the temple and angels will catch him. 
He quotes from Psalm 91, but he quotes it out of context. Interestingly, Psalm 91 was written by David and it describes the times that God protected him from Saul and from evil and from Satan himself. Earlier in the psalm, in verse 4, David says, The Lord will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. That's a quote from his great-granddad, Boaz, who says the same thing to Ruth. David did learn to trust God for his refuge, but that lesson was hard won, and he didn't always have the faith to trust in it completely. Unlike Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross puts himself totally into God's hands. That's why Jesus will gather all of us under his wings like a hen with his chicks, just as he longed to do for Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verse 37. The devil is not as clever as Matthew because Matthew evokes all of that by those few words said by Satan. When we can see all that history and context, we see Jesus' position in a different light. He's held in the centre of God's love, trusting God to protect him from enemies such as Satan himself, just like he protected David from spiritual and physical dangers. And we can tell from Psalm 91 that David aspires to trust God like that too, even though he doesn't always manage it. And the third temptation of Jesus was to worship Satan, well, that was never going to happen, was it, I hope? Satan is hoping to get Jesus to achieve his mission without the suffering, without the sacrifice. To take a shortcut to the fulfilment of God's promise, like Abraham sleeping with Sarah's maid as a shortcut to the son God had promised him. David must have faced this temptation. On two occasions, he had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. The first time he cut off a corner of his cloak, but he was mortified by what he'd done and he used it to negotiate an end of hostilities with Saul. But that didn't last. The second time he's standing in Saul's tent at night watching Saul sleeping. Like Jesus, his closest follower repeats that temptation and encourages him to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He trusts God to give him the kingdom when the time is right. With Jesus, it's Peter trying to persuade Jesus not to go to his death in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, to Peter on that occasion. It was the same temptation to avoid the work he came to do on the cross and short-circuit God's plan. So David's time in the wilderness, facing temptations, teaches us something about Jesus' heart, about his humility, about his use of power and about his sacrifice for the sake of love. And then we come to the passage in today's reading. God has been using David all along to reveal what's in his heart, some of his eternal plan, and making David's life a living prophecy. I don't know whether David recognised any of that, but in chapter 7, God makes it explicit. He gives him this wonderful promise of blessing as God continues to use him to bring about his ultimate salvation, to rescue the world not just from Philistine enemies, but from the enemy that is evil itself, 
David's throne will last not just to his succession, but forever, as God establishes his own rule through Jesus, through Jesus, far in the future. And of course, Jesus will be the man who is truly after God's own heart. David's life has become not just a living prophecy, but a building block in the fulfilling of that prophecy. And when David hears the prophecy from Nathan, he responds with some beautiful prophetic words of his own. The song of praise, which almost reads like a psalm, praises God for who he is, for his righteousness and his justice and his defeat of evil. And there's something about it that reminds me of the Magnificat, when Mary received similar news that she was going to play a huge part in God's plan, she responded with a song of praise of God's righteousness and his justice and his defeat of evil. David is full of wonder at what God has done for him, bringing him from relative obscurity to be not only king of Israel, but a king whose dynasty will last forever. He's amazed that God would reveal his heart to him like that. Then he turns all that back in praise of the God whose name will be glorified by this promise, both now and in the future. So despite everything, God did ultimately make a silk purse out of the pig's ear that was David's life. And he does the same with us as he gradually changes us to become more like him. We too are living a life of prophecy that displays God's glory and displays God's likeness and reveals God's heart to the world. <laughs>